Well, amen. It is great to have you with us today, and uh, you probably recognize that classic hymn. Maybe you sang that growing up. It's just an awesome story. It reminds us that all of us have a story, and that story is how God, you know, was with us at our highest heights, but also God was with us at our lowest lows, that he brought us forgiveness and joy and gratefulness. And as challenging as our, uh, our stories might have been, we all have a lot to be grateful for. I mean, I personally am grateful that I'm not out running in the rain right now. Anybody else uh, glad they're not running a marathon right now in the rain? So thanks for being here this morning. So we're going to hear a story. We've been uh, in the Middle East, obviously, in our study of Second Kings. We're going to kind of head way to the east of that, to Iran. And we're going to hear a firsthand story of what God can do and God has done in the life of David Nasser. Can we give a warm horizon welcome? David, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Good morning. I, um, I love the idea that uh, for those of us who are uh, the people of God, that uh, we all have one common reality in every single one of our stories, and, and that is this reality that we share the same hero. At the end of the day, uh, you might have a very different journey than me, and uh, you might come from a different generation than me or a different race than me, or honestly, the, the, the amount of trials that you've faced might be a whole lot or a whole lot less than mine, but hopefully... Uh, we all eventually came to a place where we met at the foot of the cross. And what I mean by that is we came to a moment in our story when we realized that the consistent one in our story was Jesus. And that we eventually said, you know what, um, this story is not really about me being the central figure, but you being the central figure. And in that sense, we all have one story. In that sense, we're all different characters of one big story that's being told. And the hero of that story is Jesus. That's certainly the case in my life. But if you had told me when I was nine years old that one day I would be at a church in Ohio with a microphone in my hand at the early service during a rainy marathon day and that I would be talking about Jesus being the hero of my story, I would have laughed at you as a nine-year-old because the last thing I thought of was of God being the hero of my story. I hated God when I was nine years old. I know most nine-year-olds don't think something that audacious. Most nine-year-olds don't wake up and think, I hate God. Most nine-year-olds think something like, I don't know, should I eat this crayon? All right, but I was nine when I decided I hated God because I just felt like God went first. I felt like he hated me. I'm originally from the country uh, Iran, like Pastor was saying, and I remember when uh, in 1979, the Iranian revolution happened seeing literally tens of thousands of people lose their lives under the name of religion. My father was high-ranked in the military in Iran, and I remember uh, living in an army base, and as the Iranian revolution came into play, and as the Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious zealots began to, to replace the government, I remember in those days just seeing fear be instilled in our army base. The very first week of the revolution, I remember going to school as a little kid, and we went to a military school on our army base. And uh, when we got to school, we got called out to an assembly. And I'll never forget walking outside to the assembly and a soldier coming and standing in front of our entire student body and reading the name of three students, mine being one of them, and asking me to come and stand at the front. I make my way to the front, and when I made my way to the front, I'll never forget the soldier, before even waiting for the other two to come, saw me making my way to the front and dropped a piece of paper and took a gun out of a holster and put it right at my forehead and with his hands shaking, started to quote the Quran and said that he was sent to take my life. 
And I remember that. I remember as a little kid just thinking, wow, I don't know what we've done to make God so angry, but apparently some guy is leading worship. And he's not leading worship necessarily with a guitar or a keyboard. He's leading worship with a gun because God has asked them to come and lead me to a place of death. And I'll never forget, this guy's hand just shaking, and he looked scared enough to actually want to use the gun. And I, I remember the school principal getting between me and the gun and asking him to come back the next day. And for all I cared, the brother didn't need to come back the next day. And I went home, and I told my dad what had happened. And my dad told me, he said, son, the government's being replaced, and they're killing everybody who's anybody. And you just happen to be my son, and I'm high-ranked in the military, and that's why they're trying to make an example out of us. But the good news is that you're not going to have to go back to school and face that man. And I remember those days, Pastor, literally my mom and dad kind of huddling together and trying to explain to us as little kids, you know, the best we could in our family that, uh, that there was this revolution going on and that we needed to get out of there as fast as we could. In my mind, honestly, I remember thinking we're getting away from God, not getting away from a bad regime. I call it religion gone wrong. But in my mind, we were just trying to get as fast as we could as far as we could away from God. And my parents began to plan our escape. And before they could execute our escape plan, I'll never forget soldiers coming to our home in our army base home and, and, uh, and dragging my dad out of the house. And when I say uh, dragging me, uh, my dad out of the house, it's because my mom was hanging on to the leg of my dad as these soldiers were trying to get her out of the house. I'll never forget, as soon as they took my dad out of the house, my mom got us together. And my first memory ever of prayer ever in my life was when my mom held my hand and held my sister's hand and, and said, let's pray. And she just began to cry to God that my father would be killed quickly. And she just kept saying that over and over again. Just let him die quickly. Just let him die quickly. And at the end of the prayer, I asked my mom, I said, why are you saying that? Why are you asking mom to be killed quickly? And she told me, she said, look, they're taking your dad right now to this park. It's the same park where they took his best friend the day before. And his best friend the day before was tortured slowly to death. And we need to pray that your father right now is not going to be slowly tortured to death, but killed quickly. And so when you're nine years old and, and you're praying that God will let your dad die quick, the last thing you're thinking is blessed assurance. The last thing you're thinking is that your grace is enough. You're thinking, I don't know what we've done to bring wrath, not grace, upon us. And the last thing that anything feels to us was assurance. It felt very unstable. But that afternoon, my dad came home, and, uh, you know, the soldiers did not take his life. And he looked at us, and he said, they've given me one more week. And when they come back for us, we're not going to be here. And so everything went front burner. I mean, we knew we needed to get out quick. And so my mom and my dad had this plan. They just decided to, to throw one into the end zone just in case it was going to work. And they went to these doctors that they had been going to see because my mom had these heart issues. And so they leveraged the heart issues, her, her track record of having heart problems with these doctors. And they, they asked these doctors that if they would help us. And uh, they offered these doctors our home, our cars, our clothes, and everything that we owned if in exchange. They would put themselves in harm's way and pretend with my parents that my mom needed this surgery that she needed to go to Switzerland for. And the doctors got in on the plan. About a week later, my mom acted like her heart was bothering her. And, and I'll never forget, this ambulance came and took us to the uh, hospital. And they um, took my mom in this back room. It was all fabricated. And they came back out and they said that she needed 
bypass surgery and she needed to be taken to Switzerland right away. And so we got taken to the airport and we bought two airline tickets. Like we were going and coming back and we got the homework assignment. Like we were going and coming back and we called for a house sitter. Like we were going and coming back, but we weren't coming back. We were running for our lives. And I'll never forget just holding my dad's hand in the airport and his hand just kept shaking. And he kept saying to my mom, if they find out we're escaping, they're going to kill us right here on the spot. But, you know, when you look back at your life and you look back at your story in hindsight, isn't it interesting how, and at least in my life, honestly, when I was nine, I thought we're getting away from God. I thought God was the one who was hurting us. But I look back now and see how even that day in Iran when we were just scared to death in that airport trying to get out of there, God was actually the one who was holding us. He wasn't hurting us. He was helping us. I love what it says in Isaiah 41, 9 and 10 in the Bible where it says, I took you from the ends of the earth and from its farthest corners I called you and I said, you are my servant. And then he says this, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not fear for I will be holding you in my righteous right hand. And I know that's a particular promise to the people of Israel, but those principles are so true in my life because I look back and I can see the same God that held them thousands of years ago was the same God that held my family. We got out of Iran. Nobody found out. We got on a plane. We went up in the air and we landed a couple of hours later. And when we landed in Switzerland, the ambulance got by the plane to have my mom be placed in it. But my mom sat up and said, this was all fake. And instead, we want to be taken to the American consulate. And that's where they took us. And man, we pled our case. We had a pretty good case. Look, look, uh, we, we want to come back. I mean, we want to live in America. We want to we become refugees. Uh, call it political asylum. Call it whatever you want. If we go back, we're going to be killed. My dad talked about all these Americans that he'd helped escape from Iran when the revolution had happened. But at that time, we were from the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> trying to make it to America. And for nine months, we were stuck in Europe trying to get here. For nine months, we tried legally, we tried illegally, but people were watching on TV how Iran was going through this revolution and how Americans were you know, being held hostage in the American embassy in Iran. And so, again, we were from the wrong place at the wrong time. They're watching how Iranians are burning the American flag and calling America the great Satan. And so here we were trying to make it in and we just kept hitting the wall, hitting the wall, hitting the wall. And after nine months, one day, my mom got us together, and she had what she called her American idea. I'll never forget. It's the second time we ever prayed, Pastor. My mom kind of got us together, me and my sister and, and my dad, and she said, hey, um, have you ever seen this man? And she showed us this picture of a handsome, white-looking man, you know, with a beard and a mullet, kind of a Duck Dynasty-looking fella, all right? And, and she goes, have you guys ever seen this man before? And I never had. And, and we said no. And my mom said, um, this is Jesus Christ. And since we want to go to America, we ought to pray to him because he's American. And we ought to ask him to let us into his country. And I know some of y'all are laughing, but some of y'all are not laughing. You're like, why is everybody laughing? Because you might think that Jesus was like a white Republican who was always on Fox at nine. All right. But I don't know if you know, but he's more originally from my neck of the woods than your neck of the woods. He's more camel dynasty than duck dynasty. All right. But anyway, so my mom gets us together. And I know it's bad theology, but God's bigger than bad theology. Because my mom got us together and said, this is Jesus, he's American, and let's just ask him. We've exhausted every other avenue. Let's ask him to let us into his country. And honestly, we mentioned Jesus for the first time in prayer. And a week later, 
God miraculously opened the doors that we couldn't open ourselves and allowed us to come to America. And I remember getting on a plane, Pastor, and just going up in the air and thinking, I hate religion, but hey, Jesus, thanks for letting us into your country. <laughs> and a couple of hours later, we landed in America. And you know where we moved? We moved to Texas. We should have moved to Ohio, but we moved to Texas. And that's the wrong place to move during the Iranian Revolution. <laughs> Patriotic Texas, y'all. But not just Texas, y'all. A military town, Fort Hood slash Colleen, Texas is where we moved. Can you say wedgie waiting to happen, all right? I mean, we moved right in. I got the wrong language, the wrong haircut, the wrong clothes, talking about a complete fish out of water. I walk right into the American elementary school as a little 10-year-old, and I'm like, hello, I am David. And they're like, dude, you are so going to get beat up today after school. And that was me. And I remember thinking to myself, we've escaped halfway across the world to basically unplug from one kind of fear, right, physical terrorism, and plug into a whole other kind of fear, emotional terrorism. And honestly, the weapon of mass destruction and emotional terrorism is just loneliness, just pure loneliness. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, I walked into the American school, and all of a sudden, I was the loner. I was the kid who every day sat by himself and ate his lunch alone. I was the kid who every day went to school and heard every nickname, every 7-Eleven joke, every turban joke, every what's the dot on the forehead cable hookup joke. I got called bean dip. I'm not even Mexican. I was like, you're not even accurate in your racism. You know, we'd escaped halfway across the world to honestly come to a place that was supposed to feel like assurance. It was supposed to feel like stability, but it just didn't feel that way. And for years and years, that was me until the day my freshman year in high school was about to start. I was sitting in my room and I was crying and my dad heard me and he came in and he said, what's wrong? And I told my dad, I said, dad, it's not working out. Like, I know it's working out pretty, pretty decent maybe for you or some other people in our family, but I've just not really blended in. Things have not gone easy for me here. I said, I don't want to go to high school tomorrow. That just means, you know, even a harder level of like just being the loner kid. And I told him all the reasons I was sad that my freshman year was about to start. And my dad, feeling sorry for me, said, come with me, and he put me in his car, and he drove me to the mall and tried to help me blend in by giving me a new haircut, new shoes, new car, new clothes, new everything. And I went to school the very next day, same insecure kid on the inside, but kind of made over on the outside. And instantly I walked in, and as soon as I walked in, I just went immediately from like geek to chic, baby, overnight. I mean, I went from like Abdul to Julio, baby. I'm just telling you, like, I found out what you know. You don't have to be from Iran to know this. I found out that so many times people will just accept you because of the label that you wear more than the person that you really are. And my high school years became those years where I just learned how to play high school. You don't have to be from Iran to know this. I just learned how to play high school. I learned how to wear the right thing, drive the right car, how to dump the right girl right before she could dump me how to end up at the right lunchroom table, how to act cold to certain people to be perceived as cool to certain people. And at least when I was a nobody, I was David Nasser the nobody, but all I'd become is just this like gutless wonder, right, who just wanted to not be alone. You know, it says in the Bible, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? And that was me. I just gave up my soul just because I just didn't want to be alone. And by the time I graduated from high school, 
I'd managed to, on paper, look like things had flipped for the better, like on paper, find some friends, but they were fabricated friends. Because I'd taken my brain and I'd put it on the top shelf and said, everyone else can find my identity for me. The Bible says, uh, you know, in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, it, it, it's just the, the Apostle Paul kind of makes this charge to Christians. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the presumption there is that if you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind, you'll have the will to not conform to the patterns of this world. But honestly, when, when you're just not tethered to anything stable in your life, you will conform to whatever or whoever, right, just so you're not alone. And I just remember that. I remember just being this kid who just conformed because I was just wanting to not be alone. And I graduated from high school popular, but at least, like I said, when I was a nobody, I was myself. But I'd sold out. Well, I graduated from high school, but I barely graduated. I had a 1.9 GPA. <laughs> That's pretty bad, y'all. All right, and uh about two months after high school, I was in the car with the only buddy I had left who hadn't gone off to college yet. And it was Saturday night, and uh, we're sitting in front of my house, to be very honest, and uh, we're trying to finish up a joint, to be very frank, all right? And so we're just kind of passing this joint back and forth, and it's like two minutes before midnight. And uh, my buddy looks over at me, and he goes, why are you so down tonight? You're usually like the life of the party, but you seem really down. And, and I said, man, I hugged like nine people goodbye today tonight at this party, and they're all going off to this school and this school, and I said, you know, we used to be so popular, but now all these people are going away, and as soon as we got our cap and gown, it seems like all this faded away, and, and my buddy looks over at me, and he goes, uh, he goes, well, you know, the high school's not the only place where you can be accepted by your peers. He goes, uh, you know, there's this thing in America, and, and, and uh, it's called the youth group, and uh, he, he goes, uh, you ought to come with me tomorrow to my church. And I was surprised he's inviting me to church because he's literally handing me a joint while he's inviting me to church. He's like, you ought to come to church with me. And I'm like, you go to church? And he's like, I'm Southern Baptist. The first time I heard the word Southern Baptist, I thought it was a kind of weed, all right? You know, and so I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. And, and I go, are you kidding me? And he goes, no, man. He goes, come to church with me tomorrow. And I looked at him and I said, man, there's no way I'm going to church. He said, why not? I said, man, when I was a kid, I saw religion destroy my country. We're Shiite by heritage, but I'm not really interested in going to church. And I told him all the reasons I didn't want to go, but instead of giving up, you know what he did? He tried one last thing. He named the five prettiest girls from my high school. And when he got to the fifth girl and he goes, I just want you to know they all go to my church. Instantly, I felt motivated to visit. <laughs> but I told him, I said, look, you've convinced me, but there's no way that my Muslim father, who's more Muslim and more devout than I am, there's no way that he's going to let me go to a Christian church. He goes, well, why don't you go ask him? So on a Saturday night, just to get my buddy off my back, we both get out of the car. It's like midnight, right? And we walk in the house, and he stands by the door to make sure I'm actually going to ask my mom and dad if I can go to church. And I walk down the hallway, and I knock on their bedroom door, and I said, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry to wake you up. It's midnight. You don't need to get out of bed. The door's still closed. I'm like between, you know, I'm standing in the hallway. I said, hey, um, I know you're going to say no. I'm just going to ask you a question real quick. Just say no really loud so my friend can hear, so he'll leave me alone. He wants to know if tomorrow I can go with him to church. But instead of saying no, my dad from his bedroom, from his bed, just yells really loud. He goes, what is the name of it? And I'm shocked that he's actually, like, considering it. He's saying, what's the name of it? 
So my friend who's stoned down the hall, right, by the door, he yells really loud. He goes, shades. And as soon as he said shades, that was code for this church that everybody in our town knew, a big church named Shades Mountain, all right, Baptist. And so, so as soon as my dad hears that, my dad yells really loud from his bed. He goes, shades, I know those people. And then he's silent for a second. And what I didn't know was happening was that that Saturday night where I was asking my dad if I can go to church, what I didn't know was that that Saturday night was like a two-week process for my dad already. Pat, rewind two weeks before, and um, what had happened was that my dad had met these Christians. There was a guy who was the pastor of this church, Shays Mountain, and there was a guy who was the worship pastor, a guy named Aubrey Edwards, and they had come to my dad's restaurant to eat lunch. My dad owned a French restaurant. I know it's confusing, but stay with me, all right? So my dad owned this French restaurant, and while they were sitting there and eating at my dad's restaurant, they had seen during this lunch rush how my dad was shorthanded on waitstaff, and instead of complaining about the bad service, the pastor had quietly gotten up with the other guy, the worship guy, and they'd rolled up their sleeves, and they'd waited on tables at my dad's restaurant. And then Aubrey, the worship pastor, came back the next day, brought like three people with him, and they just came for lunch, but they really came to serve my dad, and they helped the entire lunch hour. And then they came back the next day, and then after three days of helping him, they invited my dad to choir practice. And my Muslim father, who honestly doesn't even like music, all right, went to choir practice because love is a superpower. And at the end of choir practice, Aubrey stood up in front of the entire choir and said, hey, I got my friend Mr. Nasser here with me. There's a piece of paper going around. Everybody sign up to be volunteers for his restaurant. I told him he doesn't even need to hire out anybody. We'll just serve him for free. And so for two weeks, these Christians had been parachuting into Cafe de France, all right, his restaurant, and had been serving him. They called it missions. My dad called it stupid Americans. But God <laughs> was at work. And for two weeks, God had used that, right, to massage my dad's heart. So two weeks later, I'm standing there on a Saturday night, and I'm asking my dad if I can go to church. But instead of saying no, he goes, what is the name of it? And then my buddy yells out the name of the exact same people that had been helping him out. See, my story, my story is not about an Iranian kid that turned out okay. My story is about a church that showed up. My story is about a church that showed hope. That's a good name for a church. But my dad needed help. And for two weeks, these people had been serving him. And so my dad all of a sudden says, I know those people. And then he finishes a sentence. You can go there, but only there. The reason I'm here at your church is because a church showed up at my dad's restaurant. Because a worship pastor led worship with a towel in his hand when he wiped tables at my dad's restaurant. I'm just telling you. It's Romans 2. Kindness leads to repentance. And so Sunday morning, I got up, put on my chinos, and I went to church. And as soon as I walked in, imagine the biggest partier you knew in high school just randomly showing up at your church. As soon as I walked in, they were like, oh, it's David. And this one guy just befriended me. As soon as I walked in, this one guy just came and was so nice to me and was so kind to me. And, and at the end of that morning service, he uh, they had this youth rally. At the end of the morning youth rally, he looked over at me and he said, uh, hey, man, you got to come back tonight. We got like this big rally going on tonight. And I had nothing to do, but I was full of pride. So I said, man, I got stuff to do. And you know what he said to me? He looked at me and he goes, it's okay if you don't want to come back. He goes, uh, we'll come see you. And what I didn't know was they had this thing called visitation. <laughs> 
Lost people call it harassment. <laughs> and 17 teenagers the next night, on Monday night, showed up at my house. 17. And they were like, can we come in for a few minutes? And they lied because three hours later, they were still in my house. And they sat there and they started to tell me about Jesus. They told me that God so loved David Nasser that he gave his one and only son that if David Nasser would believe in him, believe in Jesus as my salvation, as my only hope, that I would not perish but have eternal life. And when they got done with their pitch, and it was a good pitch, and they said, David, do you want to give your life to Jesus? I just looked at them and I said, it's not going to happen. And I asked them to leave. And on their way out, one of them said, we'll see you next week. And I had no idea what they meant. But I'm just telling you, we were the Iranians, but we got terrorized, all right, by a youth group. Because for eight Monday nights in a row, the next eight Monday nights, we're like, hi, the Christians are coming. The Christians are coming. And they would come to our house every Monday night, and they would use a different Bible verse to bring out the exact same truth. The next week, it would be, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The next week, it would be John 14. Now, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And every week, somebody would come there, and they would open up the Bible, and they would basically explain to me that I was a sinner in need of a savior and that savior was Jesus and that Jesus had come down to earth 2,000 years ago as the son of God and had lived this perfect sinless righteous life and then had died a sinner's death on my behalf and every time I would hear that I'd be like that's good for your religion I think my religion is kind of different than that but they would look, look at me and they would keep saying to me like it's not about religion it's about a relationship with him and that's what he wants to have with you. And every Sunday, somebody would come to my house and they would drag me to church as well. And I say drag me, but I wanted to go. Because love is a magnet. I would pretend like I was indifferent to it, but I just wanted to go. And one night I was sitting at their church about eight weeks in. One night I was sitting at their church and the preacher was preaching. And he wasn't cool like your pastor. Your pastor looks like such a cool guy, you know, like jeans, cool. This pastor was like old school, three-piece suit, comb over, King James only, sweating out of places that don't even have glands. All right, that guy, all right. So he was just preaching. And, and, and I'll never forget, he wasn't cool and he wasn't hip, but he was loving. And he told the truth. And it felt that one night, I just remember, it just felt like somebody had handed this man a sticky note with all of my information on it. Because almost everything he was saying was like, how does he know this about me? And how does he know this about me? And he got done with it. And then he said, if you tonight want to give your life to the Jesus that I'm talking about, I want you to come to the front and meet me. And I just remember thinking all my life, I've been terrorized by religion. And now some man's trying to walk me down the aisle. He's trying to terrorize me down the aisle. And so during the invitation, I hit the aisle. But while other people were coming forward, I hit the aisle and I went the other way. I just left. And I thought, I'm never coming back again. And on my way to the car, I remember thinking, I'm not letting these Christians back in my house on Monday night. We're done. And I walked over and I got in my car and I drove home. And when I got home, it just felt like God's presence was thicker in my house than it was even in the church building. And I walked in the house and... When you're lost, you know, when you're not a believer, you're not a, you're not a Christian yet, you don't think of it as God's presence. You just, like, feel spooky. <laughs> feels haunted. And I walked in my house, and my parents were out of town that night, and I walked in my bedroom. I was the only one home, and I saw a stack of Bibles. And for the next two hours, I just um, sat there, and I just started to think about all these things these Christians had said to me. 
And honestly, within those two hours, I just realized that these Christians were just honest. And they were not asking me to have, um, you know, a switcheroo of religions. Like they go from Islam to Christianity because one brand didn't work. And it wasn't like, which shampoo do you like better, you know? This, wasn't a sw- this was about really religion versus redemption. It was really about like a list of things you've got to do to earn God's love versus you, you are given God's love. And then it's not a to-do list. It's not about working but worship. It's not about trying, but trusting. It's not about doing, but being. And I just remember just sitting there and just realizing that all of that, all of that was afforded to me. And I was 18 and two months old that night when I just closed my eyes and I said, Jesus, I know you're real. I know you're real. I've seen you be real in the life of these people. I knew grace was real because I'd seen these Christians be gracious, graceful. And I said, I just want you to be real in me. And I asked Jesus to to step into my life and to be my Lord and to be my Savior. The way I saw it was that I had this throne in my heart and that I'd been occupying my own throne. And that I was just kind of getting off the seat and going, it's your seat. Why don't you go ahead and take it? And I asked him to be the king of my life. These Christians kept saying, like, it's about kingship. I think they really liked the idea of kingship for me because I'd come from a revolution that had overthrown a bad king, an incompetent king. And they kept telling me how Jesus was the one who really wanted to reign in my life. And that night I gave my life to Christ. And my parents came home a couple hours later and I was crying in my bedroom when I told my mom and dad what had happened. And uh, instantly they became very devout Muslims. (laughs) And they kicked me out of the house for becoming a Christian a couple weeks later. And can I just tell you, when they kicked me out of the house, they told me that I was uh, making a really big mistake and I was dead to them. And I brought shame to the family for converting to Christianity. But five months after I was a Christian, one night my sister called me on the phone weeping. My sister was five years uh, older than me, four years older than me. And I, um, she was weeping on the phone and God had just saved my sister <laughs> through Campus Crusade on her campus. And then five months after that, my mom called me on the phone weeping. And she was screaming on the phone. She was like, tonight I become a Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling? She goes, I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. That's how she rolled. And my mom became a Christian. And then five months after that, my brother Benjamin, who's Down syndrome, God saved him. And every five months, God was saving a Nasser. as like I saw it. And then two and a half years later, my dad professed Christ to be his Lord and Savior. And people hear my story all the time. And when they hear my story, they go, boy, what a dramatic story, you know? People hear my story and they always think, man, this is, a, this is crazy. You've got such an incredible story. As a matter of fact, um, uh, Sony Provident just bought the rights to this, all right, to make it a movie. And people always go, oh, my gosh, that's such an incredible story. But I always hear that and I go, you know, my story is so black and white. You know what's even more powerful than my story? My wife's story. My wife grew up the exact opposite. My wife grew up in a pew in a church, in a very, very good section of town that was very, very much the, the, the church where, like, good theology was preached, good mission group teams were sent out, all these different things. My wife grew up in the youth group. She was the Bible drill champion for the state of Alabama three years in a row. I've seen the ribbons. Back then, by the way, you had to actually earn ribbons, all right? I know that's a novel concept to this generation, but she earned Bible drill champion for three years in a row. My wife was on the pastor's search committee, pastor, when they were looking for a pastor. She was the one 16-year-old. Everybody else was like the 50-year-old that owns the car dealership who was on the committee. My wife was the girl 
girl in the youth group, my wife was 18 and a half years old when as a counselor, with a counselor badge on, she walked down the aisle one night at a crusade and took off her counselor badge, handed it to her youth pastor and said, I don't need to be a counselor. I need to give my life to Christ. And her youth pastor said to her, you're the leader of this youth group. And she said, you're right. It's always been about doing. It's never been about being. And people always hear my story and they go, boy, it must have been hard for the Muslim family to come to Christ. And I go, not half as hard as it is for the good girl who sits at the good church and sings the good songs and gives the good tithe and has all the good answers, but closes their eye and, 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 and just prays more to a black void than a Christ that they know intimate. And honestly, I became a Christian from a lot of unrighteousness to Christ righteousness. And she became a Christian from a lot of church righteousness to Christ righteousness. And people hear my story and they always go, my story must have been, maybe it's a little more sensational because of the circumstances. But honestly, look at me. This is what I meant when I said, we all have to meet at the foot of the same cross. And she needed Jesus not any less or not any more than I did. And isn't it ironic? She was 18 and two months old when she gave her life to Christ. And I was 18 and two months old when I gave my life to Christ. But both of us needed the exact same hero. Because without him, we don't have blessed assurance. Can I get you to pray with me? Just Can we pray together? And can I just ask you before we pray? What is your story? My wife's story was I once was lost, but then I went to church. I once was lost, but I sang a lot of songs. I once was lost, but I was really, really invested in a youth group until she was 18 years old and she realized I once was lost, but now I want to be found in Christ only. I want to give my life over to him, completely surrender everything that I am, not just my attendance and my efforts, but my life over to him. I just shared with you the hour I first believed, like the old hymn says. And can I just ask you today, has that ever happened to you? If it has, there's such power in sharing your story and telling people about the hero who delivers every single one of us. And every one of us need him just as much as the other. Amen? And so, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your redemptive work. Thank you, God, that you show up. Thank you, Lord, that you saved me when I was 18 and two months old. Thank you, God, for brothers and sisters in this gathering who, who themselves can testify in their story, maybe different circumstances, of having to come to the foot of the cross, having to come to the end of themselves, having to come to a moment where they say, um, I can't on my own bring salvation to myself. I have to completely rely, Jesus, on who you are and what you've done. And we pray that, uh, that God, out of this huddle this week, um, that as I've shared my story, brothers and sisters here have been encouraged and reminded of your handiwork, God, in their story. And that they too would feel compelled to go out and share it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. It's an honor to be with you guys. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. Pastor. I appreciate it.
Well, again, David, thank you for your story. And uh, yeah, if, if you maybe have been sitting in church services for many, many years or, or watching church services from your own living room, um, maybe you've never had that moment that uh, David just talked about where Jesus uniquely comes to save us from our good works because they're inadequate and our bad works because they're worse than we think. So Jesus shows up and says, uh, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And I love you anyway, and I died for you. So if that's something you're interested in, again, we're yours to explore a church. We'd love to talk to you. Third door on the left is the hearth room about that journey or how to continue that journey or start that journey together. You know, Jesus has some profound words, and, and we try and put his words into practice as best we can. One of the things he talked about is honoring your father and mother. And so next week, we're going to try and honor our mothers. And uh, we're going to celebrate Mother's Day together, buy a gift this week. And uh, you might want to join us for that as we celebrate the women in our life. Uh, join us for that. It's going to be an awesome time to put those words of the Bible uh, into practice. But Jesus also has some interesting words about how tough it is living in a broken world. He actually says, I'm sending you, my followers, out like sheep among wolves. That doesn't sound good. He says, so I need you to be as shrewd as a serpent but as harmless as a dove. How can we shrewdly deal with the broken world we're in and challenging circumstances like you, you heard David share, but also that spirit of, of, of peace and love that God has. So we're going to be doing a, a series this Wednesday for women. If you're interested in, how do you deal with and disarm the emotional manipulators in your workplace? You know, when you feel like you're a sheep among wolves, what are some of the ways the Bible teaches us that we can love people but not necessarily let them bulldoze us? So that's something you might be interested in. It's a women's dinner at May 10th at 6.30. We'd love to be part of that. Again, love to say hi. David will be down here to say hi as well. Thanks for being here. Next week we're back in Second Kings. Thanks so much.